And I, I always promote that to parents today, like talk about your income, talk about how much your house costs, talk about your mortgage in front of your children so that they have that understanding that they don't, you don't want them to be like 25, 26 years old. And then that's the first time they hear about, oh, there's more costs involved with the house than just like buying food and putting it in the fridge, right? You know what I mean? They yeah. need to know more than that. Yo, what is going on, baby? Nathan Kennedy, The New Money Podcast, episode 95. How y'all doing, man? Thank you so, so much for tuning in. As usual, my friends, ask me any questions y'all got on Instagram as well as if you are listening on Apple Podcasts. Leave those reviews. I haven't got one in a little bit. What the hell's going on, people? <laughs> Leave me the reviews. I would really appreciate it. It really does help the show grow and get out there. I'll keep the ads nice and short today. Wealth Simple Trade, Wealth Simple Invest, two of the best platforms that will get your wealth building journey started. Check out the show notes for links to either one. I highly, highly recommend it. So for this interview, I had the chance to sit down with Rabina Ahmed Haq, who is a business columnist who has been covering money matters for more than 10 years uh, and has been a, a journalist for much longer than that and has seen a lot and has done press and coverage and like all over the world and she's just like a fantastic reporter and her and I have a really really interesting conversation on contemporary stuff money just the times I don't know all we talk about wine near the end there really interesting diverse uh, sort of conversation so without further ado let's just dive on into it baby Rabina how are you I'm good Nathan how are you I'm great. I'm great. Thank you so, so much for coming on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, you know, I really wanted to come chat with you. I've, I've uh, you know, you come up a lot in Apple News whenever those little headers come up. Uh, I see a lot of your uh, personal finance articles come up. And so I was like, wow, you know, I, I definitely got to chat with you. So really quickly, just just tell us a little bit about your history as a journalist and we can go from there. Uh, well, to give you the sort of short version, I've been a journalist for 20 years. I graduated in 1999 from journalism school, 2000 actually to journalism school. And for 10 years, I was a news reporter, like you, you know, regular general assignment reporter. I did local news. I did international news. I worked in Pakistan for a little while. I worked in England for a little while. I worked a lot in Toronto. And in 2000, 2008, 2009, during the financial crisis, I was working at CP24 and there was an opportunity to work as a business reporter because the business reporter quit there pretty abruptly and they didn't have anybody filling that role. So I volunteered because I was getting kind of sick of the news beat because you get calls at like four in the morning to go to a story and, you know, you're chasing a lot of fire trucks, so to speak. And you're talking to a lot of moms of dead kids and it just wasn't it wasn't feeling good anymore, right? To do that kind of work. And so I wanted to sort of get a niche. I wanted to get a, I wanted to get a beat. I wanted to be good at one thing rather than be good at be a general assignment reporter. And so I did that. And through that, I met like CEOs of banks and investment bankers and all different types of people in the business world who I still tap today when I need to get a, you know, an expert opinion or I need to bounce an idea because all these people kind of, you know, they sort of stay in the same, um, the same industry, they just kind of move around. They go from bank to bank to bank, or they open different companies. And so that kind of really helped me launch that part of my career. And so in the beginning, I wanted to be like a really serious business reporter, but then more I realized, A, I don't have an MBA. So not that that was a hindrance, but I definitely think that to do business reporting, there was this 
underlying uh, need that you should have a higher business education. Like you should be, you know, you should have an MBA or do a business administrative studies or something. So I did the Canadian securities course as a minimum, which was good because I got to at least learn about the markets and how money works and that kind of stuff. And then I started realizing that personal finance was much more what people wanted to talk about. People want to know how can I save money on my grocery bill? People want to know what's in the budget that, that matters to my pocketbook. That kind of stuff really resonates. And so since I am a generalist in, in that sense, I thought that this would be the better place to go. And so I started this blog back in 09, maybe a little bit later, called Always Save Money, which I did blog for quite some time on it. And then I took it down because it was on Blogger. Remember when Blogger used to exist? And so according, I never did any SEO, nothing. And according to a lot of my friends, I used to come up first when you put in personal finance expert. So I now look back and think, wow, I should not have, you know, really, I should have kept doing that, but I didn't because I got busy getting, making money. I got busy actually working. So then my first real business gig was at News Talk 1010. And I had already kind of spoken to their news editor there and he was interested in having me on. So I started doing John Moore's show, which he still does, the breakfast show on News Talk 1010. I did that every morning for a couple of years. And then I just, the freelance work just started picking up. And then I had my first baby and I decided I really wasn't going to go back to full-time work. I wanted to kind of still freelance. My husband's a pretty busy guy. And so one of us has to have a bit of flexibility. And so that kind of brings me here. Like I, I've been freelance now for 11 years and it's served me really well. Yeah, there's insecurity and I've had overnight contracts fall apart. Like, you know, you get a call saying, oh, we don't have the money anymore for this. So as of tomorrow, your services aren't needed. I mean, it does feel like getting fired, but you're not really fired. You know what I mean? Like you don't really have yeah, like yeah. a HR exit interview or anything. It's actually more cruel than that. Um, yeah, so that's kind of brings me to now. And now, you know, I do, I do quite a bit of stuff at CBC and, and mostly CBC and global news. It works out really well. Cause even though they're two different networks, they don't seem to have the same audience. So I don't have a lot of clash. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- that helps a lot because networks don't like it when you're freelance, that they see you somewhere too much. Right. So it, it, it works out, it works out in my favor. And I do a lot of radio CBC radio, which obviously is a a completely different kind of audience than say global news would be. And yeah, so I feel like I get a big reach that way. I I reach, you know, local people who are getting their kids ready when the pandemic's not happening for school in the morning. And then I also get like the the Saturday morning CBC listener that wants to hear like a long form piece, you know, so I get kind of, I feel like I get to do a lot of stuff. That's incredible. And so that's, that's quite a career you just shared. And I, I really love that, you know, it, and it seems like, you know, whenever, you know, I talk to somebody who's well-established, they've, there's a lot of like ups and downs, different places that they went, you know, trying to find their footing. Um, You know, with personal finance, is it something that you've always sort of felt super passionate about in some way or shape or form? Like, what's your relationship with money? Or did that kind of just foster you like, wow, there's a real need here, you know, and I really think I could bring some value. Is it, is it more so that? So it's more the first part. I think I've always grown up with pretty, I had very typical immigrant first generation kind of upbringing. My parents are from Pakistan and uh, they, like so many other stories in Canada, were not just raising us, they were also sending money back home. They were also trying to build their life here. They're also trying to build some wealth here. And so all of that meant that every dollar that was spent in my home had to be you know, we had to think about it. There was no, there was no frivolous spending happening when I was a kid. And so that kind of built my foundation where, you know, you have to really value the money that you have. You have to make it go as far as you possibly can. But the bonus was, is that my father also is 
he's a really fun, loving guy and loves to travel and my mother as well too. But I think really my dad has really kind of always been this kind of guy that likes to spend money on stuff that's fun. And so that also taught me that there is value in going on a great vacation with your family. There is value in eating at a really nice restaurant. And so you don't have to, like I've heard other stories where everyone, you know, they're so frugal that they don't enjoy life. So I think that I had a really good balance. But in the beginning, I have to admit, like the first probably 13, 14, 15 years till I was about mid-teens, I mean, really, there was really no extras at all because my dad was, you know, and my mom were both working full time. They were both supporting a lot of different families all, all across the world and trying to get us like to university and all the kind of stuff that goes. They had three kids. They still had three kids. So I think that that always, that always stayed with me. And even when we were... When we were young, we were always taught, taught about investment. Like, I am i don't know if you remember, but there used to be a company called Altamira, Altamira Mutual Funds. And so my dad had Altamira Mutual Funds. Back then, there was really not much choice. There was no ETFs and other types of, yeah. there's no direct investing. Cost, yeah. yeah, there was no real low cost options. So my dad would put all our education money into these Altamira funds, and he would always be talking about them over the dinner table. And that kind of, you know, that kind of just made me sort of be more interested in money. Um, and my, my brother and I, when I was 28 and he was, he's two years younger than me. So 26, we bought an investment property together, which we still own today. We continue to buy more together. So, you know, we, my brother and I both had the same uh, sort of point of view when it came to money. And we realized at the time that we were both looking for a house at the same time. We're like, why don't we just combine our money and buy something? And like, I get along with my brother quite well. We, we don't really have much, like we don't argue or anything. Right. So living together seemed like an okay option. Like we never really got in each other's way. And then we got a roommate because we had three oh. bedrooms, which was a childhood friend. So the three of us lived together for four years, which I have to say is like, like the kind of the funnest four years of my life, Amazing. you know, like when I was young. Yeah. So, I mean, I still have fun today, but you know, it was a very kind of free kind of time and it felt very, you felt very adult. Like I own this house. So yeah, I think that it comes from being like just, and I, I always promote that to parents today, like talk about your income, talk about how much your house costs, talk about your mortgage in front of your children so that they have that understanding that they don't, you don't want them to be like 25, 26 years old. And then that's the first time they hear about, oh, there's more cost involved with the house than just like buying food and putting it in the fridge. Right. You yeah, know what I mean? They yeah. need to know more than that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So as a personal finance journalist, how do you balance, you know, getting the scoop, you know, the hot, the sort of hot to the press, you know, the, the sort of flashy things like, like, you know, this cryptocurrency and, and these NFTs and all these kind of craziness that, you know, will do well in terms of people are going to look at it versus, you know, the hardcore, more, more so financial literacy stuff that maybe people kind of need to hear. How do you sell? Like, how do you, how do you go about your articles and things like that? Because I've seen fantastic, you know, personal finance journalism. And I'll be honest, I've seen terrible personal finance journalism where they'll, you know, they have an agenda and they're trying to pull, you know, the worst 10 year projections of this mutual or this, uh, you know, firm's outlook on the, and it's, you know, crash, crash inevitable, things like that. And, and so, you know, I, I think it depends, but how, how do you and your, you know, being a freelance journalist, how do you sort of approach that? So I don't, I don't try to give advice, even though I know I'm often asked on air, like, well, what's your advice? And so my advice kind of remains the same, whether it's you buying an NFT or you buying a high cost mutual fund, right? So you've got to make a decision that's best for your investments. You've got to make sure that you can afford, uh, like, for example, if you're buying something very volatile, you can afford to lose that money. Like, so if you're putting all your money in Bitcoin, I've invested in Bitcoin, but I've invested money that I know I can lose. 
And so that's the advice I would give someone that I am not putting my entire children's education fund into Bitcoin because I can't afford to lose that, but I can afford to pay play with a little bit of it. And if it works out fine, if it doesn't, it kind of sucks, but you know, it's, that's fine too. Right. So the way I balance it, every story I approach is like, how will this impact the everyday Canadian? And really I have like my mom in my mind. So my mom's watching the news. Why does she care about NFTs? Why does my mom care about Bitcoin? Why does my mom care about the federal budget? So this is kind of, you, you sort of in journalism, we learn that, right? So you have to visualize your audience. And so my audience has always been very much um, everyday Canadians, often immigrant Canadians, people who may not have access to business news. So, you know, BNN is a fantastic resource, but I don't think they have many people like my mom watching and getting any value out of it, right? So my, my you know, and sometimes I've made my mom watch my pieces and say, do you understand what I'm talking about? So when it is something kind of complex, like NFTs was one thing that even it took me a while to get my head around what what exactly are these? And then once I understood it, it was really easy for me to say, you know, it's like any other piece of art. It's like the Mona Lisa. The Mona Lisa is just a piece of canvas with paint on it, if you think about it, right? But someone has decided it has value and someone can authenticate its certificate and say, this is the original Mona Lisa painted by Michelangelo, right? Mm -hmm. Just like the NFT is, you know, yes, you can make millions of copies of it. But if I have the one that says this is the original, that's the value. It's not really the piece because I can go buy a copy of the Mona Lisa at the home sense tomorrow if it opens up, right? Like I can go buy a print of it, right? And it's no big deal. Like I can hang it in my house. Nobody's going to believe it's the real thing. But that's, you know, so things like that. So I try to take a big story and make it as palatable to the regular person as possible. I make them interested in it. So then they might take that information and say, hey, I want to learn more about this. And then they can do their deep dive and they can go and Google and do whatever they need to do to understand it. My job is just to get them understanding why it matters to them. So let's talk about that sort of average Canadian person who's just who's just normal. They you know they have their nine to five. They just work. They're they're kind of money oriented. You know they're just you know very sort of average in terms of the way they lead their lives. How has their perception of personal finance sort of evolved in your eyes? What's the average Canadian household? Has it has it has have people become more money aware over the years that you started? Have they have they started to be more frivolous? Is there more of an emphasis on investing and, and debt management and things like that? Or are we going the other way? I feel like I uh, I get such varying opinions. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. So I think a couple of things are happening. I think uh, Gen Z, which is now people who are, you know, 20-ish, right? So they're like, millennials are now middle age. I really hate it when they refer to millennials as being young because, I mean, most likely, uh, like I have managers now who I work with who are millennials. And so, you know, they are, you know, like they're, they're no longer kids. So Gen Z, I think is very money savvy. And I think they really know how to get the information and they know how to get it very quickly. So all this sort of, you know, the Reddit, the Wall Street, what are they called? The Wall Street? Wall Street bets. Wall Street bets. So the, the guys on Reddit, they're all young guys or girls. Yeah. that made that happen. And I, now that there's so much access to information too, like you have access, young people, everybody has access, but young people being more tech savvy have access the way that traders have access, you know, and, and in some cases you can, or you can have the technology in your house where you can trade as fast as somebody on wall street. Like you don't need to know, you don't need to be an investment banker and be on the trade floor and have the bank give you the privilege. You can do that on your own. Right. And you can make money on your own. So I think there's that, that's one side of it where there is an appetite and there, there is a dangerous side of it too, because 
in the last 10 or 12 years, we've only seen a bull market. So when young people say to me, well, I made so much money on the market, I'm like, well, obviously, because the market's only been going in one direction. So even though I'm not exactly old, but I have sort of, I remember in my memory when the housing part the housing market crashed in the early 1990s, uh, I specifically remember my, my uncle bought a house for $550,000 back then, which was crazy. And it crashed to 300,000 homes next year. We're selling on the street for half. And so you can imagine what that would do to somebody's mental health, right? Like you're thinking I, I paid twice and it took now. Yeah, of course the house is worth more, but you have to wait like 30 years to get there. I also, you know, there was, I, I've lived through obviously the 0809 crisis where a lot of people lost a lot of money on their retirement savings. Uh, they capitulated, which means just got out of the market. They got so sticks. They got so scared of it. So I feel like this generation does need something like that to kind of give them a reality check. So, but I do think that they have access and have the, the will, because I think we've all, we've had access for a while now, but they have the will and they're willing to put in the time to actually mm -hmm. learn what the market does. Then there's the other side of it where the millennials grew up with parents who themselves probably didn't know how to manage their money. So they were like the first generation of people that maybe didn't get the same money lessons as the boomers and definitely the, you know, the kids born after the war, because those, those people were very money savvy because they knew what it was like not to have money. So my parents, for example, were all are, are they boomers? My mom's a boomer. My dad's older than a boomer. So they were very like, you know, my dad lived through partition of India and Pakistan and didn't have, you know, good shoes for 10 years. These, like this kind of real kind of hard, real stuff, I've been to his stuff. village. It's like something, you know, you see on television. It's pretty, pretty striking. So I think, you know, a lot of young people grew up with parents that don't, they don't themselves understand all of that. Mm -hmm. And, but the financial crisis, what happened after it, and definitely the pandemic, because all of a sudden we have been forced to live a little bit simpler, has taught us like so many more people are now interested in making their own, like make, cooking more food at home and making food at home, growing food at home, being more conscious of the environment, being more aware of where they buy things. And if it's got, what, what's the carbon footprint, having more time to research where things come from, I, you know, and because all of this is connected, like the pandemic, all of it is connected. Like it's all like environmental issues, climate change, the pandemic, it's all connected, right? So for all, we all treat the earth better. We are all going to have a better outcome and it's better outcome for our children and on and on and on. And so I think that's the two groups of people. I think there's one group where they need a reality check, although I think they're very savvy. And the other group is the people who are now maybe after decades of kind of free spending and, you know, seeing their home price triple in 10 years and thinking they're like Warren Buffett. They're not. Yeah. They just happen to buy at the right time. Like my brother and I bought a house in 2005. We weren't smart. We just bought a house. And, you know, right? like, you know, there was no, there was no brains involved with that. We won. Yeah. We won because it just happened that way. Yeah. So that, that's, I think that's the two types of people, but I am really impressed with, you know, even though like we kind of have made it into a bit of a meme, like, but you know, it kind of really impresses me that people want to learn how to make sourdough bread. Like that's a, that's real basic stuff, right? Like that's learning how to, and like I, the other day made bone broth. Like who, who makes oh, bone wow. broth on their own, right? Like yeah. now I'm like collecting chicken bones from like our family meat. Like who would do that two yeah. years ago? That's so weird. But yeah, now it's I, like, oh no, but we can make more out of this. Why are we yeah. throwing this away? 
So I think that even me, I'm guilty of that too. Like I would never make bone broth or make sourdough bread. Never. Not till till this year. (laughs) That's, that's a really awesome positive outlook because, you know, it's really given us, like you said, a lot of time to, to kind of give more attention to things like that, where you're more curious and, you know, you could save a little bit more money. You're not eating out as much. And it's kind of just forced a more sedentary lifestyle where you're not out about. And I think a lot of impulse purchasing definitely comes obviously when you're out and about and you're, you know, you're out maybe in an urgent situation, you just got out of a meeting, you got to go across town, you didn't pack a lunch, you know, super, super situational circumstances that literally cause spending have evaporated, right? And so 100%. And, and it's so funny when you when you talk about, you know, I'm 24. So I'm young. I've kind of lived through the OA crash, but not really because I was like, I think I would have been 10 or 9 or 10 but I knew something was going on because everything around me was just like it was and my parents were very transparent when we were younger and you obviously Um, don't remember September 11th because September 11th was another time where after September 11th was when there was a need in the economy to really bolster people and that's when low interest rates started happening that's when you know they really wanted to encourage people to feel good about their spending because everyone felt Everyone felt like crap after the whole part, the whole continent was depressed after, right? Lowering the interest rates slowly helped people feel better about spending because it didn't cost them as much. And so all of that, it just all kind of started at that time. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's just been a really interesting time. Like the last 20 years have been Insane. fascinating to watch. Like it's been so, it's been so, you know, and I, I'm reading right now uh, a random walk down Wall Street. And as the, it's the refreshed one. So it's really just talking a lot up until I think it's 2018. So it's talking about all history from like the tulip bulb craze and in, in, in uh, <laughs> the Dutch tulip bulb craze in, in Denmark from all the way up to, you know, now with uh, they, I think the most recent one uh, they were talking about was uh, Bitcoin and how that just came off. And I wish it was written now because look, look, look how crazy that even more crazy that is. Well, um, I'll give you a perspective on my mom Facebook groups. They're talking about Bitcoin. If no. that's not a bubble, then what is, right? Like moms, yeah. stay-at-home moms, no offense to them whatsoever, but yeah. they are talking about Bitcoin like they are the experts. And that yeah. really worries me because yeah. I can bet you anything, they don't know what's going on. Yeah, it's it's remarkable. My And, you know, it's, it's funny you say that because my mom asked, you know, she said, she sent me a text a few weeks ago and she goes, she's like, Trudeau, Bitcoin, we got to, let's talk about it. I'm like, what? What are you talking about? Like, well, how old is your how old is your mom? My mom is fifty. My mom's fifty. I'm I'm forty five, so she's just five years older than me. Yeah, yeah. But my point is that you know, I I don't necessarily, I won't, I don't root for bad things. I never root for bad things. And a crash for a lot of people is is is, is rough. And a lot of people, like you say, capitulate. They sell off. They you know they don't buy. They don't do the hold part with the buy part, right? But I do think that. I kind of almost want that for my generation to kind of feel it out because obviously, you know, I make a lot of content on TikTok and I talk a lot about like long-term, you know, investing, buy and hold, shoot for that 8% a year and you're winning, you know, that that's out the window. Like, you know what I mean? Like that is just nobody, it's like 8%. What am I like a a boomer? Like I'm looking for like 8,000%. And it's, it's sort of conditioned us. A lot of people who are just kind of like external spectators who who are just kind of trying to learn that like that's the reality and it's kind of like you said like I want that for us to to kind of get rocked a little bit to kind of like even it out and so I think it's it's almost like it's like a dose of medicine that like we kind of need you know yeah and so that eight nine percent that you talk about which 
is the tried and true tested method, right? Is that if you just have diversified investments in the market, so a typical example would be just buy an ETF that follows the S&P 500 or even the TSX would be fine. Then mm. over time, you are going to make eight or 9%. And that's really, really good. And if you speak to traders, they often will tell you, that's how I invest my own money. You think I'm going to yeah. take a chance and like, you know, put my house up for like these options or on, you know, um, like any kind of hot stock, like Bitcoin, like all of that they do with like the bank's money. Right. <laughs> yeah. And all the stories that you hear, like you only ever, like when I'm at a party and someone tells me, oh, I made so much money on Tilray. I'm like, all right, well, what did you lose money on? Like no one ever tells you what they lose money on. And I, that's the one thing, like if you can, it, it's like anything in life. If it comes easy, it can be taken away easy. It is just okay. a life lesson that at one point people learn and then they realize, and I've done it too. I've put money on things that I thought, you know, would make money really quickly. And I did watch it go quickly and try to like be smart. No one is smarter than anybody else. Everyone is sort of just the same. I, I always try to, no one, no one, no one really knows what's going on. Even when you meet people who talk like they're smart, like no one knows what's going on. No one can tell you where the markets are going. Who could have guessed that home prices would be up 30% year over year? Like, yeah. right. So you could have just Insane. bought real estate if you wanted to, it would have been up 30%. I yeah. mean, I don't know whether people can afford to buy a home even a year ago, but anyways, um, yeah. So that's, that's the issue is that it is going to come. There's going to be a shock and I'm not going to change my portfolio. I'm going to continue on the same thing that I'm doing. I, I go through the ebbs and flows. Mm. I don't sell and buy like my brothers do that a little bit. But I just, I just, I can't do it because it causes me unnecessary stress. And you, it's like when you're in traffic and you're trying to change lanes constantly and just end up with the guy, yeah. you know, that was beside you. It's the same thing. Yeah. You're, you're increasing your risk, but you're not really going to go anywhere faster. And so, and it's so funny because I, I, I really started to get into this uh, a, a few years ago, you know, starting out in school and things like that. And when, you know, March started happening and last year, I was a mix of I was like, this is what we've been training for. This is what we've been looking at. This is all the content we've been reading. This is all the the the, the foundational. This is the moment. When and, the markets were going down. When the markets were plummeting. I'm like, okay, finally. Here's where like the actual long-term winners are made, right? And and so I was still, it was crazy because I was still petrified. I was like, holy shit, what if it keeps like I had never really lived it and had something to lose uh, in in a sense. But I still ended up like, all right, listen, just tr trust the process, buy long-term, diversified, whatever, just double down. And it, and it worked out, you know, obviously. But I think, like, I almost wish that, like, you know, I, I was in there longer. And I, like, it trained, like, I had more time to, like, kind of get, get trained. And I think, you know, I wish more people had that as well. Because, like you said, like, it, it really equips you. Because there is a, like a, a point of no return with some people. Like some people are literally going to lose their shirt and they're never going to recover from all of these NFTs and cryptocurrency things. And I think, I think that would have been a good time for things to really level off and kind of, you know, obviously, you know, you stimulus, you could talk about all the economic everything after this. But I'd say, you know, there's there's going to be serious serious harm, and, and obviously because things are so weird right now i don't see much of a sort of recovery plan for somebody who puts 
They're, like you're seeing things where people are putting their tuition money, you know, 10, 15, 20 grand into Dogecoin or into some of these cryptocurrencies. Keep and, reading, reading about and Ethereum, like, oh, it still has so much runway. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, maybe. It could, or. It couldn't, yeah. So does roulette. Like, so does uh, your, you know, your hot hand on You might on as well go jack, to the you know? casino, put it on black. Like your <laughs> yeah. chances are pretty much this. And you're going to, you're going to get even more of a dopamine, like burst <laughs> of dopamine <laughs> from that. Dopamine, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you would literally watch it in front of you so i i mean i i it's just it's insane and you know i i, I try my best to not be a t- i told you so kind of person and i don't i don't want bad things to happen but it's like man like we need like my age group needs it like we need a like we need to get just rocked you know what i mean mm-hmm. i think it's coming i mean it's been the longest bull market i think in history i three thousand or i don't know how many thousands of days it's been the market has changed because of all the technology that's now available to trade and all the other factors so before it was big hedge funds kind of you know running the running the show there are things like we talked about about reddit and individual investors even in the 0809 crisis there were individual investors that were big key players in that happening in understanding where the markets were going so like we we've, we've been seeing this this story kind of play out for a while i don't want people to lose money just like you were saying i don't want to be negative but i do think you know it would do the economy good to have a bit of a slowdown because it you can't just always be going at 150 miles an hour, 150 kilometers an hour, whatever you want to call it. If you just can't, you're going to crash. It, it, it just, it's just a fact of life. I think after the pandemic, we're going to see the, the economy continue to rise because there's a lot of people, I, I would say the 40 plus sort of crowd who have white collar jobs, as we call them, they've been able to stockpile a lot of cash. And as soon as they say, people say go, they're going to all be out in the, in the restaurants and going on trips and and concerts. And they're just going to, you know, they're just going to flood the economy with that kind of money, but that can't last forever. Right? Like how many restaurants can you go to? How many vacations can you go on? At one point, you're just going to so like anything else, just spin out and you're like, okay, I just need to go back to normal for a while, right? But yeah, I think it's coming. I mean, I don't know when. I, I'm not a forecaster or an economist, although even economists are just guessing. They, they're just educated guesses. And, you know, it's what's crazy to me is, you know, with with big tech, I think there was kind of like a little bit of a sell-off a few a few months ago. And then their their earnings reports all came out, like, you know, last last week. And the, they are crushing it. Like Facebook, Amazon, or Amazon Alphabet, like Google, uh, just they're just all it's like you know you hear all these people talking about bubbles this bubble that but like the biggest players and and, and you know obviously the the american stock market's very top heavy it usually is but it really is now they're all just absolutely crushing it and it's kind of like when is this gonna like <laughs> like it's like you just you look at some of these numbers like how is apple pulling in you know how are they beating their quarterly revenue every single quarter like how how is how is this happening but then you look at some of the things some of the trends that are going on and everything, everybody being online and people just not, like you said, white collar sort of demographics, having more money than they know what to do with. They're just like, and a lot of it's been going towards some of these convenience things uh, that are tech oriented, these apps. And it's just, it's, it's, it's remarkable. And so I definitely agree once that things open up, there's going to be a lot of discretionary money spent and hopefully it kind of like evens things out a little bit, but yeah, it's just, for me, it's a, it's, it's one for like, you feel like you're living in a history book. You're just like, okay, just like, this is all going to be documented, like with a fine-tuned comb, you know? 
Well, the one thing that is moving very quickly is population growth, right? So all of a sudden we're moving in for a long, long time. I can't, I don't know the numbers off heart, but for a long, long time, we were kind of just bubbling at, you know, one, two billion, three billion in the world. And now we're at like 9 billion plus, and we're soon going to be at 10 billion plus. We're at 9 billion? In the world. Yeah. 9 billion people. Isn't it 9 billion? Let's Google that very quickly before I look like an idiot. Okay. 7.6 7.6 billion in 2019, okay. in 2019, <laughs> but that's still more than I thought it was. I thought it just broke seven, like last year or something. So we're almost at 8 billion people. And by 2023, we will be over 8 billion. So by 2050, we are going to be at 21 billion, 21 billion. There's going to be three times as many people on the earth in less than 40 years, less than 30 years than there is today. And so that's where all this is coming from, right? So when people say, well, you know, what's changed? Population growth is changed. Like we're all, it's, we're just, there's more of us to do more. That also means there's more poverty. Like, you know, don't, don't get that, don't get mixed up that everyone is rich because more and more people are being exploited. More and more people are being taken advantage of. And that is helping those people who are continuing to make money. So that's why, you know, and tech is, it's, you know, it's the one big, the one thing that everyone can get access to no matter where you are in the world. And so like, that's why you have, you know, places in India where they've now, they've kind of cornered the market on tech and it won't be long before we're going to be relying completely on them if we're not already for mm. our, all our tech solutions, right? So I, I think that's the one thing that people don't think about is that there's just, there's just that many more consumers. I mean, there if you have 10 consumers in at one point in time, and then 10 years later, you have a thousand consumers, that's just a thousand more people you, like, you can sell to, right? Exactly. What, what's your outlook on the Canadian economy specifically on, on the world stage? I mean, you, you know, you always hear a lot of things, hey, we're too resource dependent. Like we need to get more on the world stage. We're not stepping up. We're we're too small, things like that. Well, what's your opinions on where we're kind of going? And what's your sort and again, you don't have to have like an opinion of like Canadian markets going up, it's going down, but like what's your sort of sentiment around, you know, maybe younger Canadians who are looking for growth and, and they're looking at their economy or some of the publicly traded companies here and they're like, ah, you know, I, I gotta go get yield in the states or these international markets that, you know, Canada isn't there's nothing going on there for me. What what's what's your sort of uh, take on that? So um, the one thing I learned about Canada was when I left Canada is how people see us as being quite small, uh, smaller than, and you'll be hard pressed to find Canadian news in the British media. You'll never hear about us in the United States. Um, If you go to South Asia, for example, and you turn on their local news or their even in their international news, there's very, very rare time where you, where you actually hear Canada being mentioned. So I think that's one thing that we need to realize is that we, we sort of insulate ourselves in this country. And we, of course, we're important. We're a very important nation. We're in the G7. We're next door to the biggest economy in the world. So all those things make us very important. But generally speaking, I mean, this is why the pandemic has kind of shown us how, you know, we were like last in line for the, for the vaccines. Like, people, you know, we all of a sudden understood our place in the world. And these things, you know, Canada is, like you mentioned, a resource dependent. I mean, if you want to get into certain kinds of businesses, this is maybe not the place to do it. I mean, people go to California if they want to really get really involved with tech, even though we have, you know, we always talk about Kitchener-Waterloo and some, in some cases, BC as well, but really the action is in, 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 uh, in California. And so it's just, 
it's not that Canada is insignificant. I just think that uh, we are we are a small nation and we take up a lot of room and it's very hard for, you know, like we hardly have airlines in this country. Like yeah. we have like, you know, there's always like an argument that we don't have enough competition of airlines, but how many, how many places can 35 plus million fly, people fly? Like, it's just yeah. impossible. That's why they have all these discount airlines in Europe and in the States, because they've just got more customers going back to your point of like, you know, how much can we grow? Like we need more people. We need immigration. We need immigration in this country. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely think so. And, um, you know, it's, 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 it's tough. Cause you know, I'm sure you have pride in being a Canadian. I definitely do. I, I love being a Canadian. I love this country. And, but it's, it's, it is tough to be like, ah, you know, like we're so small, you know, compared to everybody else and, and things like that. And, and, uh, you know, Michael Katchen, he's the, uh, I think he's the CEO and founder of Wealth Simply. He's always pounding the table on, we need to be bigger. We need to keep our talent here. We need to, you know, do all these different things. And they, you know, for, for, for Canadians to see, I think they just raised a $750 million round. And I think their valuation is like 5 billion, like, you know, here's a company who's like really trying to like go the distance and and show that like hey we are you know like similar to shopify like we're like a huge huge company do you think that that trend could continue do you think that there's going to be more homegrown talent that stays in canada or do you think and eh, like i don't know like it's still kind of similar to how it's always been no i think so i mean on every front right so in the tech sector in in music and acting and sports like we have our examples i would think per capita we probably have more uh, music superstars than the us does right like we produce some of the mo the most internationally known musicians and actors compared to the US and their population they don't per capita don't have as many and i think tech companies as well i mean shopify it, it is one almost one of the biggest companies in Canada. I mean, at one point it was bigger than RBC. And so that's nothing to that's nothing to sniff at. I don't know. I don't know really know what the answer to that question is. I just think that we'll continue to innovate. We definitely need to foster entrepreneurship. I think a lot of people have been scared out of it during the pandemic. Like if you had a small business that you started two years ago and you're you're wiped out, you may be scared to start again, or you may not even have the means. You may not even have the money to start again. You might just have to go and get full-time job at a company. But yeah, I don't, I think Canada is a good place and it's a good test market, right? So you can always test things here and, and they, we have very similar behaviors than we do to the States. And then, you know, it's going to work in the States. So that's another bonus that we have is that you can test it on a smaller scale. And with some confidence, you can take that same model to the States. Yeah, that's, that's, I've heard a lot of companies actually use, I think London, London, Ontario is one of the best test markets. It's a very, like very, very diverse very average sort of town that is, you know, sort of indicative of the population. I just have a few more questions. Really, uh, you know, I'm just, I'm just curious, are you planning to continue personal finance, journalism, things like that? Uh, tell me a little bit about what your future plans are for your career. That's a good question. I don't know. I mean, I always have these back pocket ideas because there's two things about my career that I, I am well, well aware of. One is that television, radio, there comes a point where new people come along and the audience is more interested in them. I'm well aware of that, right? So there's a point where no matter how great you are at your job, there just comes a point where there needs to be some turnover, right? I've been doing this now for 10 years uh, in, in the personal finance space. There's definitely people 
who are doing it very well, who are much younger than me, may have more time than me, may have more better ideas than me. So for that reason, like I'm always kind of, you know, looking. So just two things. One, I may continue in personal finance as long as I can. I think I will. I think I continue and, and do that. I would like to do some sort of money management at some point, but I don't know. I don't know. Maybe, maybe. I don't know whether I have the chops to do like help people with their investments. I definitely can help people with their financial planning. So like if someone comes and says, you know, I'm in this much debt, I don't know how to, what I to do like that. I can help with. So maybe, you know, if, if I felt like this, I'd sort of had my run in the broadcast world, I might move on to that. And that would be a very, very easy transition or just do something different. Like, I mean, I'm really into wine. I really love wow. understanding wine and where it comes from and where it's going. And so like another one of my, you know, dreams is maybe one day to own a winery, but that would be wow. so far down the road and yeah. you would need money and you would need some support and you'd need, I think I was born in the wrong generation. I think I should have been more like grew up in the sixties. Like I really think I have a hippie kind of aura to me where I really like growing my own food. I like, I I like, I don't like to buy things that I don't need. I I hate excess. I mean, even though I like nice things, I definitely like nice things. I don't like excess, if that makes any sense. So yeah. So I mean, I, I would love to do something like just something that has, that brings me more back to the earth. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's so, that's so pure. That's so pure. I was not expecting that. And I think, I think that's definitely something, you know, I think about a lot is, you know, I've started to learn a lot more about the CSC and like the different paths you can take and go legit because I, you know, one thing, and I won't spend too much time on this, but you know, I, I have seen, you know, uh, you know, some, you know, money coaches or, you know, financial advice givers who, you know, I think, Oh, let's name some names. No, no. (laughs) It might be, you know, exposing themselves to some serious liability in terms of if things go south, right? It's like, you know, going back to the whole, we haven't really experienced a correction. It's like, how do you know that, you know, you're running a a safe practice if you've never dealt with clients losing half their portfolio in overnight? You know what I mean? Like how, you know, how are you going to manage those expectations? How are you going to, because there are going to be people who come out of the woodwork and say, well, this is your fault. You told me to do this when you didn't, right? You didn't say, you didn't even mention, you could have not even said anything about it, but you know, they could tie it back to something or a post you made or something like that. And, you know, it's, again, it's like it, it, you know, you're not well equipped for things like that. And so for me, I think I would love to start to explore that a little bit more and, and figure out how I can maybe do that someday. And then with the wine thing, that's, that's, that's so, again, that's so pure. And, and so I think-, I, I think you should, you're 24 years old. This is, this is, if I wish I was 24, go and buy, do some research. I can send you some stuff too. go mm-hmm. and buy two mm-hmm. bottles of really not expensive, like, like less than a hundred bucks, two bottles and just put it away. And oh, then yeah. when you're, when you're like, I don't know, when you're married and you have like your first kid, you can open like when you it's going to be an experience because you'll be like, I bought this when I was 24 and now wow. I'm, you know, and it's just that and you'll have that conversation with the person that you're having it with. You're not going to have a party. You're just going to have a conversation, yeah. right? I might do that. That's so cool. So like are there certain types of wines that, you know, I had a wine phase for about two weeks. So, you know, I, I think I know and I was a bartender. So I know like, uh, like the bare minimum of Pinot, Pinot Grigio, you know, like just the basic stuff. But um, are there certain types of wines that 
like can go the distance and other ones that have like are meant for like quick consumption like what would have to be a finer wine that to age yeah so generally speaking if you buy a wine for like 20 bucks and under you should drink it right away because that's most likely made for commercial purposes they're not really the whole point of keeping a wine for a long time is that it changes in taste and and i I don't know whether you'd want to do this but people usually buy two and they drink one today and they put the notes down and then they drink another one 10 years from now and then they compare but that's really like you don't need to get that nerdy about it right so you want to buy a wine that's like like reds like cabernet sauvignon or brunellos these kind of wines they and if you go to the lcbo this is a really easy way to do it if you go in the vintages section or even in the regular wine section when you look at the wine price it will have the bottle up on the side or lying down and so it'll immediately tell you whether this wine should be drank today, like right away, it's ready to go, or whether you can keep it or drink it today, or whether you definitely should put it on a shelf for a while. And wow. then you can Google the names of those wines, and there's lots of notes about them that will tell you like what you should be doing with it. And like generally speaking, if you buy like a good quality Cabernet Sauvignon or good quality Brunello or Barolo or you know or good quality French wine, you just put it somewhere dark that's mm-hmm. not going to get a lot of vibration. And then just drink it like, you know, you would not drink it at a party and you would definitely not drink it like on a night out with friends, but you might drink it when you have your first baby yeah. and say, you know what, let's celebrate this. Yeah, no, I'd love to, I'd love to learn a little bit. I think it'd be very interesting. And I think, you know, I do, I am a sucker for, you know, the finer things. I just, I, I'm frugal by nature, so I don't, <laughs> you know, but. Yeah, like yeah. I wouldn't be recommending you buy like $100 bottles of wine to right, drink right, with your right. buddies. Like I, I, even I wouldn't, like there's no way I would do that, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, it's ridiculous. Like we're not millionaires, but um, maybe one day you will be. I'm sure you will be one day, but you know, <laughs> but yeah, if you, my whole thing is I just want to like, now I wish, cause I traveled a lot when I was young, like in my twenties, I'm like, wow, I've traveled to Italy and Spain and all these great places. I wish I just picked up a bottle once here and there and just brought it home and kept it, you know, like it would have yeah. been a great story. Even if it turned out to be vinegar, it would be a great yeah. story. Right. I think I, that's definitely top of mind now. I'm definitely going to, uh, definitely going to consider it, but, uh, you know, I, I, I've taken enough of your time. You've been very generous. Thank you so much. I got one more question for you. What's one thing that somebody, you know, a younger person in their 20s or up and comer, you know, obviously things are pretty uncertain right now. What's one thing you would say could, could help them set them down the right path? So the best advice I ever got when I was in my 20s was that if you work hard in your 20s on whatever it is your goal is, whatever it is that you want to do, you will reap the reward of that your entire life. And so your 20s is a gift. Because it is a time in your life where you're not in a lot of debt, you most likely don't have children, you probably don't have, you know, a wedding, probably not married, even if you are, it's just the two of you. So there's a lot of opportunity to grow and learn. And so stay curious, because honestly, like once you have children, you have a family, it's slow, it almost comes to a screeching halt. Like you basically, and now I just rely based on my network that I built in my 20s and early 30s. Like I'm not building any new connections today. So that is my best advice. So whatever it is that you want to do, like I'm not, you know, obviously I'm going to tell people to write things like invest for the long term and put money in your RSP and everyone's heard that, right? But it's more the, it's more the, whatever it is, like if you want to, if you want to study to be a lawyer, the best time to do it is in your 20s, right? Like that's when you can really give law school 
like the, the right kind of attention and make the right connections. And when you're young, there is something about being young that makes you more interesting. That is just the fact of life, right? So when you're a young lawyer that walks into the law firm for the first time, people are like, wow, I haven't seen that person before. What's their ideas, right? Whereas if you've been around for a while, it's your ideas feel stale. You are stale, right? You, that, that's just <laughs> that you are stale. Yeah, like yeah. my ideas are older now. Like I have ideas Obviously, I've built like there's wealth of experience. That's a totally different conversation. Mm -hmm. But that is the best thing. And meet everybody and be nice to everybody because your reputation follows you for the rest of your life. I still have like stories of people that I might not have been very nice to that still don't like me. And it was like 20 years ago. I'm like, we need time to get over it. Right. Like because <laughs> of something that happened in like a newsroom somewhere. And I'm like, yeah. man, that guy's not over it yet. So, yeah, be nice to everybody. That's definitely fantastic advice. It's been such a treat to chat with you. I feel like I could chat with you all night, but uh, for the sake of time, thank you so, so much, Rubina, for coming on. It was it was just so insightful. And I think, uh, where, where can people find uh, more of your work and, and maybe uh, reach out if they have any questions? Well, the best place is Twitter. So I'm Rubina Ahmed Huck on Twitter. I have a website, but it's not very active. Same RubinaAhmedHuck.com. Um, but Twitter is the best. I post everything that I do on Twitter. So you always know what I'm up to and um, you can follow me on Instagram too. Instagram is more fun. I post about wine, gardening, my kids and art. Perfect. Perfect. Well, thank you so, so much for coming on. It was, it was honestly such a pleasure. Okay. Thanks, Nathan. Good luck with everything. So there you have it, my friends. Thank you so, so much for tuning in. Again, just such a delight to chat with her. I think hearing some of her stories and the way she kind of came through and go go listen, read your articles, go listen to her. She's got a wealth of information and I really think uh, she's as legit as they come. But thank you, thank you, thank you so much for tuning in. Again, Wealth Simple Trade, Wealth Simple Invest, two of the best platforms to get your wealth building journey started. It will be me back on the mic spitting it to you next week. But until then, I appreciate y'all. I love y'all. But for now, I'm out this mother. Peace.